Hey guys, welcome back to the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike, and today's episode, we're talking natural disasters. Today's a special episode because I got Kurt Hohan from Phil Craft Survival. You have to say my last name like that all the time. Jeez, man. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have. Uh, We've got Kevin Falk from Devil Dog Consulting. Yeah, we have this uh, ex-Force Recon dude. <laughs> Just kidding. He's not Force Recon. He told us he was initially, and then the Mike Lamb case came out, and then he's like, no, I'm actually a logistics guy. Now, we got, we got Kevin Falk from uh, Devil Dog Consulting. He's a, he's a medic that we're working with. So I think it's going to be a cool episode because, number one, we've been getting harassed by, by everybody. <laughs> that we need sound to do a- pissed about that. Well, no. You know, it's funny. About generally about podcast is hypothetically, this is a theory of mine, it's my opinion, but I think it's it might be fact. I think we're probably the only top twenty five podcast in government and organizations that's probably not paid to do a podcast. Yeah. Like the top five dudes, like soft rep typically is top ten. We usually beat up on soft rep and I pay to have a podcast edited and put on, and we don't have any sponsors. Right. Which means we're just poor, <laughs> <laughs> and we do it out of the goodness of our heart. You know, I think the only problem in that is it just hasn't been, to be honest and frank, we honestly haven't had the time, man. I mean, we've been busy as hell on this contract, all of us, right, on the same oh, yeah, contract? super busy. And so it's been it's been on the back burners, like four and five, priority four and five. And so, one, we apologize because we want to get back to that, and soon we are which I can't wait. You know, we talked about reprioritizing a lot of things that we're doing and content, giving you guys content is really important to us, whether it's on social media or if it's, you know, a free podcast that we're providing. We got to want to give you guys that that uh, opportunity to to hear what we're learning and putting out because it's it's our life, you know, survival and especially survival preparedness is uh, our passion it's what we do for a living so anytime we can learn something and disseminate to you guys it's it's a pleasure for us to do so so expect more expect more you guys deserve better that's what i'm saying <laughs> today's episode natural disasters it's it's something that's i'm just learning in the last few minutes is uh something that both these guys uh, both the guests on the podcast kurt obviously he works for phil craft so he's always on the podcast now but something that i just realized that kevin being a firefighter paramedic and been on the job for a long time has experienced a lot of natural disasters in the state of Florida, right? Yeah. In 2004, we had, uh, in the span of a month and a half had about four hurricanes that hit back to back to back to back. So we had a lot of, uh, a lot of experience, especially living in a uh, community that's, uh, bordered by the beach. So we had a lot of, uh, is Florida bordered by the beach? That's <laughs> the county I live in has seventy-two miles of beach. On it. <laughs> you guys have an immigration problem. You guys should probably build a wall or something. Yeah, I, I grew up in Daytona Beach, so I remember routinely Florida being pretty saturated in emergency preparedness as far as the local first responders, the state, even the population. We were educating the school. We had disaster uh, emergency response programs in our school system. I remember learning stop, drop, and roll, and then hurricane preparedness in kindergarten growing up there. So it's it's a pretty routine thing in Florida, right? Yeah, we they teach a lot of that in Florida, and that's what uh, some of some of the stuff that I do in my personal life is taken from some of the lessons that I learned uh, after all those hurricanes came through. Now, also, Kurt, you know, Kurt grew up in California, and we were just talking about this before the podcast as well, but Kurt experienced one of the 
major earthquakes in Cali, right? Yeah, that's right. So in 1994, um, I just moved to Southern California and I was getting ready to attend high school in Mission Hills. And um, the Northridge quake happened in 94. Obviously pretty significant event. Uh, I know there were a decent amount of people killed in that earthquake and um, you know, no fresh water, electricity was out. And so thinking back to you know, that experience, even as a teenager, there's a lot of lessons learned there that uh, I think we can pull uh, as far as survival is concerned. I don't think about us as the experts in natural disaster preparedness initially. You know, it's something that, it's not like we did that in the military, but if you take all of our world experience especially in special operations, looking at crisis response and emergency preparedness. You know, it's not like we were mobilizing to do uh, disaster relief, but the same fundamentals of principles, planning and yeah. The, yeah, the same principles of managing a natural disaster are the same exact preparation, planning considerations that you do uh, in special operations for anything that's uh, a crisis. So, you know, my degree, I got a degree from American Military University and really crisis response and homeland security. And the only reason I tell you that is because I actually got a passion for that, you know, that, that preparation phase and understanding how to deal with these natural disasters. So you got some frame of reference. I, I also, in 2005 in Afghanistan, while on the Pakistan border, I, I was, you know, the first time I was ever in an earthquake, it was overseas, was in a major earthquake in 05 in Pakistan uh, or, or in Afghanistan on the Pak border, but also in the same spot almost in 2015, I was in Pakistan and experienced another major earthquake and was working with the State Department and had the experience of, of doing interoperability crisis response with the Pak Mill, the Pak police, the Pakistani police, and also the U.S. government. So, yeah, we got a, we got a lot of good perspective. So hopefully this lends some good information leading into this conversation that might provoke some thoughts and some planning considerations for you and your family to make sure you guys are safe. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this one. All right. So leading in this, in this episode, you know, worst case considerations, when we're talking about natural disasters, there's a whole bunch of natural catastrophes that take place all over the United States. And one of the biggest considerations is a geographical location. Absolutely. Like you grew up in Cali. So uh, what, what what were kind of the the natural disasters that you guys experienced in that area? Yeah, so the so the big two probably uh, obviously earthquake, right? We talked about that, and then uh, the other one would be uh, probably forest fire. So uh, I grew up in the Central Valley as well. So if you're spending time um, in the Sierra Nevadas, it's always a concern, especially you know California experienced that drought for a long period of time, and I mean. All it takes is one lightning strike or, you know, somebody doing something stupid. And the next thing you know, uh, you know, the fire is out of control and people are trying to move out. So, yeah, I had a uh, it's it's crazy because we keep I mean, we're provoking these kind of thoughts, but I, I forgot all about uh, the 2016 fire. It actually started behind my house in Jackson, California, in the Sierras, the foothills of the Sierras, and it burned over 10,000 acres. It burned. I think over 500 homes. It actually killed a guy, uh, and it started in my backyard. My house was evacuated for two weeks. They, I had mandatory evacuation, and the firefighters were using my house as a staging area uh, because the lake taboo that was next to my house was a water point for aircraft, 
and for uh, emergency response uh, to stage. It was pretty crazy because I think about that situation and not being able to bug out of that environment or the people that were in that situation, they had to bug out and they weren't given the opportunity or they didn't have the opportunity because it happened so fast. And it's in California is pretty sparse like that just because it's, I mean, geographically, it's got the mountains, it's got the beach, it's got pretty much everything naturally that could happen yeah, disaster-wise. Right. I remember the firefighters shit my toilet and it couldn't flush, so I had just a pile of poo. So <laughs> thanks to the firefighters for defending our, that, the home that I had. And, you know, poop is a, is a minor inconvenience. <laughs> so I didn't they didn't poop in the top of the bowl. Yeah, they could have gave me upper deck. <laughs> yeah. And they, yeah, so I appreciate that, guys. No, I think, I think it's an interesting point, though, like Mike's talking about is, uh, you know, geographical areas. So, I mean, this could extend you know, outside of the United States as far as travel preparedness and, and some other things like that. Like, hey, if I'm going to Bali on a trip or country X, you know, what are the natural disasters potentially that have happened uh, in that country or that space? Um, and what do I need to be prepared for? Yeah, it's a good point. And, and, you know, tying back to our talk about what we do in special operations, we, we do this preparation phase prior, right? It's part of planning. And part of that is uh, we call it operational preparation of the environment or OPE. Some people call it advanced forwarding operations. Um, but in a nutshell, what we're doing is we're developing uh, atmospherics and the information picture, whether it's Google imagery, word of mouth, hell it could be a brochure on vacation places in that area. We're trying to get as much information about that place. And, you know, it, there, one part of it is you want to be interested in the environment that you're going into. But the other part of it, like Kurt said, is the contingencies. Like, hey, what, possi what possibly can go wrong? From petty crime to violent crime to natural disasters, you want to do that research. Um, now, growing up in, in, in Florida and Daytona Beach, I know Florida is a completely different environment. And I, and I do remember, uh, again, them being better prepared, it seemed, for disasters because they were always exposed to them. Kevin, what are some uh, some considerations that, especially working in, in uh, fire EMS, that you've experienced uh, that Florida is is privy to? Uh, Florida, like California, we actually have wildfires as well. We're actually going through kind of uh, a semi drought right now as we speak, and uh, as we're doing this concept out here west, out west here, we are uh, back home. They're actually having, uh, I believe, the last count that I saw was about 165 uh, forest fires or wildland fires that are going in the state of Florida right now. So not only, you know, during the summer do we have wildfires, but, you know, during the latter end of the summer, you start getting into hurricane season as well. And then obviously all the thunderstorms that happen in Florida throughout the summer and throughout the year, you know, growing up in Daytona, some of those thunderstorms can be just as bad and spark off tornadoes as well that, that, that go with that. So, you know, Florida's kind of like the state that you can get a little bit of everything. You've got hurricanes, tornadoes, wildfires, and then, you know, just your typical afternoon thunderstorm uh, can can play havoc with, with some of the different weather conditions and, and different things that you would see there in Florida. Yeah, I, it's interesting because I was just thinking about how, you know, natural disasters usually kick off, and, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but the man-made catastrophe, right? Because, you know, part of the, the problem with natural disasters is it, it breaks down the infrastructure or the structure period that's developed in that environment and then uh, chaos ensues because people are hungry, 
Um, they're desperate. They want to get out of that environment. Uh, one, one good example of that would be the uh, major flood that took place in Louisiana. Um, you know, a lot of people were underwater and displaced. And now that, you know, and now Texas, all the way out to Texas is being affected by this, that displacement. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of considerations in different geographical environments, even overseas, like Kurt described. And, uh, you know, all these things are things leading to the conversations of, of what we have to do preparation wise to make sure that we're prepared for these type of events. So in a nutshell, you know, it depends on where you live. You know, you're not going to be preparing for the winter storm in Florida, but you're going to be prepared for the tornado slash hurricane. You know, a good place for information is local government state um, statistics. You know, websites. Websites, exactly. And and finding out what is the worst case scenario in that environment that you're moving to. Uh, You might get a lot of information about potential threats and hazards that will lead you into your preparation phase uh, that we're going to go into now. Yeah, and also what you can do, and I know from just being an emergency response, you can go on the governmental website of the county you're going to, to the EMA, the Emergency Management Agency, you know, EM is the referred to. Uh, They always have uh, good information on the different uh, contingency plans and disasters in every county in America. Awesome, man. Awesome. All right, so the first thing that we, we need to do is obviously, you know, we're, we're helping you guys develop a plan. And, you know, we broke down some subcategories in planning that you need to take in consideration. Uh, the first thing is food. When you're displaced from a natural disaster, food is a consideration. I, I don't, you know, I didn't prioritize these. I wouldn't say food is the, the highest of the priorities. But, you know, you know, like Kurt was saying, in California, when an earthquake happened, Hell, I even heard heard of a, a two inch ice storm in Georgia shutting down the grid, where people didn't have electricity for weeks. Yeah, in Atlanta, yeah, a couple of years ago, shutting down the freeways and yeah. it just everybody was uh, displaced. So having food is a consideration for for caching or for storing because you never know when the next time you're going to get resupplied or the ability for you to resupply at a local grocery store, or local food chain, and you just got what you have. In the military, I know me, Kurt, and, and, and Kevin here have all experienced on long-range patrols or long-range uh, type training missions. Uh, we had to carry and procure our own food en route. So, you know, you're looking at calories. Kurt, in, in California, you know, when looking at that type of environment, because I know, you know your home situation, you know, being semi-rural is a different environment from somebody who's an urbanite living in the middle of the city. What would you do for long, long-term procurement, or you know, it doesn't have to be long-term, but short-term procurement of food in your storage area? Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, with uh, with the way that I plan and uh, and put things together for my family is, I'm a huge fan of uh, you know, maybe funny kind of, but Cliff Bars, obviously, because they're high in calories. Yep. Um, and they're easy, they're small, you can pack them, you know, in a go bag or anything like that. And then I'm also a big fan of uh, Mountain House Meals uh, from REI. I know REI carries that kind of stuff. I'm sure you can go on Amazon or any website uh, that provides, you know, freeze-dried food and grab some stuff like that. So obviously that stuff keeps for a long time, and it's super easy to throw into a go bag or something that, 
uh, you're going to use uh, for an extended period of time and maybe it gives you you know a, a good enough buffer to where you can actually get out of the natural disaster area uh, with you and your family and then you get to a place where you know other people are consolidated their shelter set up um, there's some type of a plan but at least uh, you're not depending on anybody else but yourself for that initial period of time you, you know when me and you went to ranger school and i think you had the same thing we had the long-range patrol oh, yeah. rations the lerp I, rations the lerp rations that was the shit because i remember you could take like sweet and sour chicken and add a quart of water and then blow it up to this big ass thing of food yep. and then you were able to store it and 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 uh take it on the go but i i think the coolest thing about that was, like you said, with the cliff Bar, it's best bang for your buck. It's the most condensed calories. Uh, and that's what, you know, you're going to be calorically deficient and you're looking for any kind of calories that you can get in to maintain energy, carb and protein. So you could have brain function. So you're making good decisions. And like her said, it's not the end state is not to sustain yourself um, in homestead. The end state is to get out of the natural disaster area and move somewhere to a safe place, which we'll, we'll obviously talk about a little bit later. Kev, what about you? I, I mean, you know, Florida is a different environment, right? Because you're surrounded by ocean. Potentially, displacement causes you guys to channelize. I remember, I know Highway 95 runs south through that city um, like a spine. And the only place out is going north, you know, to the borders. If you're going to hold and squat in that area, is there some kind of different food function? Or is there a displacement of food or a caches that you would think out? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, like you guys were talking about, <clears throat> the biggest thing is making sure that you have water on hand, you know, with uh, with that. And I know we're going we're gonna to hit that here in just a second. But with the uh, with the food, I, I'm the same with Kirk, Cliff Bars, Granola Bars, anything that's very uh, calorie dense, that's small and small packages and calorie dense um, is, the best, is the best thing that you can go with, especially if you're talking about a go bag that you're going to have to be carrying your, your stuff with you. Now, if it's a shelter in place, then obviously if you're staying at your home, then uh, you, you have a lot more options. But uh, once you go on the go, I know my go bag, it's, it's, I have very uh, calorie-dense type bars like Kurt was talking about to be able to, to keep in there. So, yeah, you know, there's two, there are two variations, right? You have the mold, kind of mobile chow, which is your meals ready to eat, your dehydrated chow. It's light. It's compact. And like, like Kev said, you have to have water. Um, to to supplement that, you know, you just can't start. I actually had in Florida phase of ranger school, my squad. I had three heat casualties because three dudes before the patrol stuffed dry chow in their gut and then didn't drink soaked enough water. Yet yeah, it yeah. soaked them dry and then basically affected them and hurt them. You know, versus the dry goods that are stored in your house that you could procure and have for an extended period of time. It's almost like firefighter chow. Where, you know, if, you're, if you have a family, you know, maybe cliff bars aren't enough in a go bag. You got to feed the family. So things like uh, rice, you know, which is a, is a really dense carb and a small form factor will be perfect to be able to cook. Because all you, all you need is, is hot water to right. be able to, to get that going. Yeah, and and I know, it stores well. Right. And another, another one that a couple of my buddies uh, keep on hand is like black beans and red beans, the dried versions. Of oh, yeah. Because then you can soak them in water and you can boil them and they've got a lot of calories. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a little something to go with, you know, like rice like you're talking about. Yeah, and you know the saints goes, uh, red beans and rice didn't miss her. <laughs> True that. <laughs> <laughs> that just popped in my head on when you said red beans. 
Um, but yeah, beans, like uh, dry beans, uh, dry food storage period is always a consideration. And one thing is uh, that comes to mind in survival also, and the, the Brits uh, usually teach this, is uh, storing fat, right? It's storing uh, pork fat or even beef fat, but fat is a good fuel. You know, it's a good fuel for energy. It's also a good fuel for fire, for flame. It's also good for cooking, right? And you, when you're trying to uh, actually cook things. So I, I don't know anybody who stores pork fat, um, but they actually have containers of that stuff. You know, it could be a can of Crisco. I mean, that shit yeah. could be like a candle on the go. So <laughs> say you go down to the deep south, my grandmother always had like my Crisco. My grandma cooked with Crisco. <laughs> and uh, like bacon, my grandmother would always pour the bacon grease in a bowl beside the, uh, beside the stove. So she always had grease. Jesus. You know, Back when food was real. I'm yeah. getting hungry. I know. <laughs> I know. Bacon? Bacon, yummy. All right, so water. You talked about it already. Water, you know, in survival, me and Kurt teach the staples of survival, and water is one of the primary, besides really exposure, which would kill you the fastest uh, in a period of time. I think uh, water is the second because, you know, it takes the average male, uh, depending on their physiological profile and their physical fitness and other variables uh, usually two to three days before you dehydrate your organs shut down and you die a miserable death I would say uh, procuring water or, or having water on hand is is pretty important when we did long-range patrols in Afghanistan and Iraq um, Kurt when you did uh, long-range stuff with uh, your units we always planned for water resupply that I mean you couldn't function without water uh, what's a good rule of thumb for it for water per day uh, for a male? I mean, I know this is a trick question because <laughs> I know you know the answer answer to it. But per per male, you need to get about approximately how many quarts of water per day? The answer is five to seven. <laughs> good job. Uh, the answer is uh, five to seven quarts, Mike. <laughs> now. Uh, it's funny that we bring that up, right? So uh, I remember being on a, uh, a long-range surveillance mission in Iraq early during the invasion, and uh, my LURS team, you know, launched from an air base. Long-range reconnaissance surveillance, right? Yeah. Long-range reconnaissance. Long-range, yeah, it was actually the, um, the 18th Airborne Corps Long-Range Surveillance Company is yeah. what it was called, LURS-C. And we did a mission uh, that was uh, pretty far away from our, our primary base, and I can remember doing that mission, and we no shit brought five-gallon water jugs, um, you know, in the, the standard military, you know, uh, container and infilled with those because... The water jugs? Was that like a PT event? You're like, dude, shit, we got to carry these? It was like 100-pound rucks with water jugs. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was... Uh, luckily, uh, the folks that were working with us met us at the HLZ when we infilled, and we had a mobility platform, so... <laughs> I had to walk from a helo to a truck and throw my ruck in, you know, with water. But it, it's a good point, right? So we always talk about water being one of the primary things that we need to worry about. I think for me, when I think about that in a, a survival situation uh, with a natural disaster is, uh, you know, one, keeping, you know, water bottles or some type of a fresh water source near um, in a vehicle, you know, in the house, because uh, we plan a lot of different levels, right? And we talk about this, and we've talked about this before, but the different levels of survival gear that we have is, as we continue through the process of, you know, bugging out for a natural disaster, man-made disaster, whatever it ends up being. Uh, but, but when I think about, you know, having fresh water on hand, you know, good rule of thumb is five to seven quarts per person. 
um, or for a grown man and, and then obviously you can cut down you know a little bit based off of body size like if you're trying to plan for your kids and your wife uh, and stuff like that but um, but keeping that fresh water source with you so the idea is I would have it in the house somewhere or I you know have it in the house and then uh, I have it in a mobile platform and then I also have some in a go bag or something to that effect and then the backup to that obviously is uh, hey if you're staying static uh, there's boiling water. So a good example is when the earthquake happened in Northridge, you know, the emergency services in, in Los Angeles County and LA put out like, hey, the water is not fresh anymore. You've got to boil it for a certain amount of time before you can drink it, right? To make sure that uh, it's clean water. There's also other resources that you can get at REI, like, um, you know, uh, I think it's called the Steri Pen. Um, and then uh, there's the Life Straw and a lot of different things. The most important thing about buying those things is realizing what area you live in, uh, reading what uh, the package or the uh, the actual device says that it gets rid of in the water, right? Because there's different things. Protozoas, different, bacteria, yeah, exactly. virus. There's, there's different things in different areas. And typically when you read those, uh, you know, on the back of the packaging, it, it, it will tell you what, what bacteria and, and nasty junk that it'll get rid of. Yeah, and that's a good point. It probably leading into the conversation with Kevin because you know, and when you're in a a disaster area like Florida, just like Louisiana, when a you know a flood comes in or a torrential rain comes in, which causes floods, you know, it goes into these fresh water sources and contaminates the water. And usually, fresh water is one of the first things that go. Um, have you had any experience with kind of those situations where water was an issue in a disaster? Yeah, actually, uh, bringing that up, the uh, hurricanes that we had, because we had, in the span of about a month and a half or two months, we had four hurricanes that hit the state of Florida there in 2004. And uh, we literally helped run the lines that were passing out ice and water. So you had uh, uh, people that didn't. Uh, it's just like any other thing. You know, everybody waits till two days before the hurricane's supposed to hit, goes to Walmart. You know, by then, the shelves are Buys practically... all the bread. Right, buys all, buys, buys <laughs> and the all peanut the butter. bread and milk and yeah. peanut butter are the staples of survival. Don't <laughs> yeah. ever forget that. Bread, milk, and then you know, like in Louisiana, you know, people were getting TVs for survival. <laughs> Never know. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but yeah, water water is a very is a very uh, hot commodity. You know, during any type of a natural disaster, you know, the general rule of thumb is you can go three days without. You know, after three days without water, you're kind of screwed, and then you can act, your body can actually go for up to 30 days without food. But so water, water is kind of the life source of your body. If you don't have water, you're you're pretty much screwed. And and that's in Florida. You know, when you have hurricanes uh, and those kind of natural disasters, uh, like Kurt was saying, like the life straw or different stuff like that, that's where it becomes to where you may have actually an overabundance of water. You just have to either have the tablets like that's in your survival kit, yep. uh, a life straw or something like that. It's not that the water is scarce. It's just you have to purify, clean it, the, yeah. right, purify clean the water prior to drinking it because it can lead to things that, uh, you know, medical conditions that, that no amount of water is going to help you with then. Don't yeah. miss an opportunity to talk about poop. It could give you diarrhea. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just going to go into <laughs> that because it made me excited because I was like, hey, man, like if you like – a bacterial anything will cause you to have giardia, which obviously makes yeah. you piss out of your butt. And when you're peeing out of your butt, you're obviously getting dehydrated. Right. And so that just leads to and compounds more issues, issues that can kill you. And so 
um, you know, growing up in the military, I know, especially for me and Kurt and like Ranger School, we did water resupplies. I think, you know, I remember us planning patrols based on the water source. I mean, we were kind of led in that direction. (laughs) Um, But you did that and, you know, a planning consideration in anything that you do would be to look, hey, look at your home and look at the closest Walmart. What's the closest fresh water source? Because, you know, if you live in Florida and the saltwater uh, table rises in a hurricane and it, it displaces or contaminates your freshwater sources, then you need to look at for alternate water sources. And that could be, you know, like Kurt said, the, the uh, containers of water that you've stored on site. Uh, one thing that, you know, growing up in the military, especially in reconnaissance, that I've always uh, noticed that we didn't do right and that we probably could have done better is we, we try to always carry out our water. We try to carry out uh, three days worth of water as a basis for our operation. You know, was, we, we had to do typically uh, and, and be prepared for 72-hour op. And in that, we had to carry, you know, five to seven quarts per day, which led to obviously a lot of weight that caused us a lot of issues. I mean, hell, it, during the summertime, you'd go through that in, on infill oh, yeah. because you were just – your smoke jumping into a, a training scenario – and now you have to walk with that much weight, which obviously uses a lot of water. So, you know, one of the things that we used to do uh, a little bit s- more more smart, <laughs> most smart, most smarter, more smarter, <laughs> is uh, we did the whole tab thing, you know, like the back to Rainer School. Yeah, the using, iodine tab. Using the iodine tablets. And bleach, actually, was yep, another. Bleach, yep. uh, common household bleach can contaminate that water. And, and having a plan to contaminate water, but also having a plan to store it. Clean it. Clean, clean not contaminate yeah. it. Oh, we, we you, don't, yeah. Don't contaminate the water. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's a new thing. You want to contaminate your water so you can practice. Put, put a little poo in your water and practice. Make sure you're, you're decontaminating it, right? One thing before before we move on. like We weren't ready to move on before. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the other thing that people don't realize until you start carrying, and I know you guys do from your long-range patrols, is every gallon of water is about 8.3, ga- 8.3 pounds to every gallon. Of water. Was that your force recon? You, and yeah. you do that? In your, yeah, is that force recon that, math? That's my straight up stupid firefighter math. Dude, I didn't realize it's it. 8.3 8. pounds, pounds per gallon? gallon of water. Wow. Dude, I drink a gallon. No wonder I'm so heavy today. Yeah. <laughs> it's just water weight. Yeah. That's so, 240. <laughs> how dare you? I'm 239. Um, so, another consideration um, before I was rudely interrupted by Kevin. <laughs> I apologize. Is uh, containing water. You know, we we always, like Kurt said, he infilled on an op and had these awkward jerry cans, basically, is what we used to use. Yeah. And we use it now to smoke the shit out of new students that are trying to be special operations because you can't really carry that without smoking the hell out of yourself. Yeah, it It, sucks. Yeah, it sucks. And as the war developed, we started getting a little bit smarter with uh, these bladders and blivets and these containers. I'll never forget doing a free fall infill with a Nalgene bottle and landing on it and almost breaking my rib and realizing, hey, maybe I don't want to carry something that's so hard and you could run over it with a car tire and then also break fracture your ribs on a on a field problem. So we started going to soft blivets and containers. Also, remember, you don't have to be, they don't have to be sexy Nalgene or sexy uh, blivets that are expensive like Camelback and stuff like that. They could actually be like Ziploc bags. Yep. They could be garbage bags. Whatever it takes to have that uh, survival um, mentality and you know adapt to that that situation. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the durability issue is a little bit different in the civilian world, right? Because they're not doing a free fall jump and they're not doing, uh, you know, some type of combat environment thing. So, you know, Ziploc bags and things like that make good alternate uh, water containers. Absolutely. Okay, I think we beat, beat water to death. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> All right, so the next next one is uh, we're going to go to the shelter. I, I skipped a couple because I, I want to go kind of in like an order of priority. <laughs> um, shelter is is something that me and Kurt teach when we're talking about the staples of survival because we're trying to maintain body heat. We're either protecting ourselves from the sun, from the elements. We're using maybe a space blanket to reflect heat or divert heat so we can get warmer. So when you're looking at shelter – we're looking at shelter from the natural disaster perspective as providing coverage from the elements, but that might be compromised in hurricane or the earthquake that came through where you're displaced and now you have to have shelter on your own. Um, I think shelter starts with your house. You know, if you're obviously able to hold in place and that's a consideration because you've planned accordingly then that's a good good uh, way to go about it. There's no need to displace from somewhere that's secure where you know you're good. But if you have to displace, um, there are considerations. I think the the biggest, most realistic consideration, and I'll I'll leave it off with uh, or lead it off with you, Kev, because you probably experienced this, is actual shelters that are used in the local community during a federal management managed crisis. Yeah, and that's uh that's one of the big things I know in our county. Uh, is they start using the local high schools, elementary schools, all your public buildings as shelters, whether it be a shelter. Um, they have all kinds of different shelters. Some are pet friendly, some are not. Uh, some are special needs shelters to where it's your elderly or you know people with special needs children or, or other adults. Um, and, and that's a great thing and that's why people have to, even when you're going to these shelters in a natural disaster, you have to be self-sustaining. Those shelters that we open, they don't open and have abundance of water and food for you. You have to bring that stuff with you. And sometimes even your shelters get compromised because in 2004, one of the hurricanes, we had a shelter at one of the elementary schools and the wind started gusting and actually peeled back the roof on it. So during the middle of the hurricane, we were evacuating people from the shelter to another shelter. So you have to you have to be able to bring a bag or two, live out of it, and you have to be able, you know, it has to be a thought in the back of your head that, hey, if something goes wrong here, I don't need to have my stuff spread all out to where it takes a lot of time to get it back together to to get out of the shelter that you're in. Now, what's the consideration for a shelter? Is that something that's pre-planned? Like, you know, as a firefighter, all the shelters in your area? Yeah, and that goes back to like you guys did in special operations, the whole preparation phase. You know, they, they do that throughout the year, you know, because our county, the county that I live in in Florida is 72 miles long and it's 16 miles wide at its widest point. So there's a lot of coverage there. You've got, you've got a lot of people in all varieties, you know, people from the beach or people inland, uh, depending on where, where you live is where the local shelter and even the county, you know, identifies that, hey, this shelter is for county employees. So, you know, if my wife's a police officer, so it doesn't really apply to me now because she would be on duty. But uh, before she became a police officer, uh, you know, her and my kids, if I wanted them to go 
go to a shelter, I would have to, in January, when they sent that email out, say, hey, I have a wife and three kids that'll be at this shelter, you know, pending if something happened. And that helps for planning. <clears throat> right. That's yeah. the whole planning phase of that, you know, of them having a good general idea of how many people are going to show up at that shelter, you know, and, you know, they have to know because it goes back to... Uh, the fire side of it is you only can pack so many people in yep. a certain space and it'd be safe for everybody that's in there. Yeah. So, you know, the takeaway from that, I, I think is a, as a duty and responsibility for somebody who's in a danger area is you have to know what shelter you're going to yeah. and you have to plan accordingly, plan the routes, the alternate routes and, and rehearse it with your family. You, you just don't identify and go, yeah, we're going to this school. Well, if you're, if your kids, if your wife, if the whole entire family doesn't know where that place is, then it's kind of like a, a mute point uh, of information. But if you guys know it and you just say, hey, today on the way to dinner, we're going to take this route and I'm going to show you which way we're going to the shelter if right. something happens and we're going to meet up. Because, you know, in, in special operations, we use these geographical known locations as a rally point to meet up. And, it, you know, in the in the lack or the loss of communication period, you have this place, this geographical place to be able to loc locate um, loved ones and link up with them uh, in the event that you lose everything. So, you know, shelters just aren't uh, used for actually providing shelter. They could be used for a sustaining food, a yeah. rally point. I mean, there's a whole bunch of considerations, medical uh, yep. even. So also when we're talking about shelters, talking about hurt situation with earthquakes, I mean, we're not just talking about external shelters. We're talking about internal and I know in California, um, you know, since the San Francisco earthquake that, you know, completely uh, caused a lot of engineering oh, issues, yeah. there's new code and there's new, there's new laws in place, uh, especially with the infrastructure to be able to provide support in the event of a major earthquake, which is due. You know, obviously they're due for one. What internal shelters are available in those situations or, uh, you know, even outside of that, like, uh, you know, tornado alleys like Oklahoma, what, what's, what's, what's out there? I mean, is there, is there things that they can, you can go and hide in? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I think one of the biggest things I remember talking about as a kid, my dad, uh, was in law enforcement, but my dad is also a vet. He was a pretty proactive guy when it came to, to talking about certain things. And, uh, and obviously, uh, keeping his family safe. So I know one of the big big things is like during the earthquake inside of a structure, you know, it was going to kind of where the hard points or the strongest points of the building were um, to prevent, you know, uh, anything debris falling on you or uh, furniture, um, you know, people have china cabinets in their house, just different things like that. But it's being aware of the hazards inside your home because obviously when that earthquake hits it's slinging things around inside the house i can you know distinctly remember uh, as a 13 14 year old young dude um, being woken up by the earthquake and just hearing it uh tossing things around in the house um and and actually it's kind of a it's kind of funny i look back on it now it's like in my tidy whities in bed and i had a large dresser that fell on my legs um, but you know, you think about that. I, I was a young dude at the time. I was able to wiggle free and then, you know, get, uh, to where my dad was. Uh, but I think about elderly people and different things like that. So obviously all considerations, uh, inside that, inside the structure. 
Yeah, so you, you always thought, you know, in an earthquake, you would want to get out of the building, depending on the situation, right? Get out of the building and get in free space or free air. And I remember me and Lee, you remember Lee from, uh, from Third Group, you were on the same team with him, but me and Lee were in this earthquake and it woke us up. Um, we were racked out in our rack on a second story of this mud, basically mud hut fire base that we lived in. And we were sleeping on cots surrounded by uh, um, sandbags. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had built up sandbags, like fighting positions around our bunks. And it, it started rocking and we both stood up and ran outside into open space. And I remember looking across the Konar River and seeing a village, the, the village of Naray, and buildings just collapsing of mud because, you know, it's, it's Afghanistan. So they're, they don't have code in Afghanistan for engineering. And so buildings were just collapsing and people were just dying. I mean, literally, you're just watching people get crushed. So, you know, looking at the infrastructure uh, of how your house is built and maintained, it's in California, in certain cities, they have codes where certain buildings are on rollers, certain beams are, are placed certain ways. You want to get to a point, uh, you know, creating a safe room or a safe place for your family to go in the event of it. It's almost like the same thing that you look for in a tornado, a basement space where they actually have tornado shelters that are embedded in the ground that are used below the house where in the event that a tornado rips through the house and it destroys the place, your family's underground. Uh, one thing I was taught, and I'm not sure if this is a rule of thumb for, you know, I think maybe firefighters taught us this, is if you were in a hurricane uh, with high sustained winds, you should go into the bathtub because inside the bathtub, uh, you had the highest likelihood of, of no debris falling and also of being in a confined space where if, if the roof collapsed or anything collapsed, it would fall on top of the tub, I'm assuming, and you would be protected in the bathtub. Did I just make that up or is that a... <laughs> No, that's uh, normally we, we tell people and that's, you know, that goes more towards like your tornadoes is, you know, is get <clears throat> get into the center of your house and get into a, uh, a room that has no windows. And that's what you generally want to do that keeps you from uh, getting flying debris. And like you were just talking about a while ago, uh, when Hurricane Andrew came through South Florida in the 90s, it kind of devastated that area. And there's uh, there's a lot of different codes that changed for residential and uh, both business because of that hurricane that came through that uh, now you have to have hurricane strapping on your roof trusses when you build new homes. And then you have the hurricane shutters and windows. Uh, shutters are required for houses. Uh, some people go with the window option, uh, especially like some of your elderly community. Um, that don't have the energy or the time to be able to get outside when a hurricane is coming and put those uh, shutters up on their house or for just lazy people that uh, don't want to put shutters like myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny. I, I, you know, I, I think about... Um, it's it, funny. You're lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I think, <Dude> burn. <laughs> I think uh, lazy people are funny. They're comical. I, you know, the government, every, every government, organization uh, you, you know local government organization has a recommendation for things that you should do and i think some of the shit's kind of funny because you know when i look at ready.gov which talks about different natural disasters they describe in almost exact detail what you should do and some of the stuff is relevant it, overall it's relevant but i think one of the biggest issues that you run into is you know it depends there's a lot of variables involved like it talks about in this situation what do you do if you don't have cover to 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 seek shelter in 
and you would protect your head and neck with your arms or a pillow or a book and this or whatever is, for is available. An earthquake. Yeah, this is for a earthquake. So, you know, it it really depends on the situation. I think the biggest takeaway from all this stuff is, you know, you need to do more research on your particular situation in the event of an earthquake. I could tell you right now, if an earthquake happened and you're trying to seek shelter in San Francisco, um, if you go outside and you're in an urban uh, situation, you're more likely to get crushed by falling debris off of a building, which will kill you, than you are to actually seek shelter inside and just ride the storm out. Because if you ride it out, you know, you're less likely to get smoked by debris um, as opposed to being exposed on the streets and, and, and being affected by other hazards. So in shelter, there's a whole bunch of considerations. Yeah, I think the, honestly, I think the key takeaway here is, is a, you know, we talk about this a lot in survival in general, but it's just being a proactive individual. And uh, Mike and I, um, and even Kevin being a first responder, but Mike and I, you know, uh, as former special operations guys, uh, you don't find a lot of guys in the community that aren't proactive. Um, you know, we define a lot of things in a military sense where we, you know, call things a mission and then we prep for that mission and do all these things. Well, in the civilian world, in my mind, it's no different. You know, the mission, uh, you know, maybe your mission statement is what, you know, what do I need to do uh, based off of my geographical location to survive a natural disaster? And that kind of asking yourself and defining what that uh, mission statement is will then drive your whole planning process to be successful yeah, and you survive. You backwards plan off the objective, the end state, right. which is survive. Yeah, which is living. Living. Yeah. You want to live. This is definitely, we're definitely not even close to being done, which is awesome. We're scratching yeah. the surface. Because, you know, we're, we have a lot more uh, content to talk about in this episode, and we're almost uh, 50 minutes in. Um, so we're going to stop right there on wor worst-case considerations and uh, planning considerations for natural disasters. And then in part two, highlight and finish up the rest of them, which include, you know, go bag, communications, the med plan, your fall black, your fallback plan, uh, a lot of good information. And, and we're actually going to walk you guys through a worst case scenario and we'll do what we call chalk talking, which is kind of do a course of action development on the fly, which is what we like to do. We're like the M&Ms, the freestylers <laughs> of uh, worst case scenarios. I got to get an absolutely in. So absolutely. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we, before we do in, I like to answer a question that a, uh, a friend of mine asked on Instagram. And she's in a position where she's going to take a new team. She's going to potentially take a new team. Um, and the question was asked in in a leadership position. And this could relate to corporate or military uh, leadership in a corporate environment. Uh, what does a new team leader do to introduce themselves and integrate into their new team? And you you know you obviously have special operations experience. Kev has force recon experience. So <laughs> between the two of you guys, we can, you can come up with some good good uh, Q and A for this. No, I yeah, these are great. I actually I really enjoy. Uh, these type of questions and I've experienced this several times and you know I think the first thing that's extremely important for you know a new team leader a new leader that comes in is to you know to come in and not try to change anything right off the bat I mean ultimately you've got to get in there and see who your you know who your all-stars are who your who your you know sub performers might be you need to look at the efficiency of how things are working but Ultimately, you just don't step right in and uh, and and irritate everything right off the bat, right? So it's like stepping in, doing an assessment, 
and then, you know, taking the information that you've gathered and then, you know, maybe making uh, uh, fine adjustments um, to make things more efficient. Yeah, I think, you know, when I, look, when I think about this question, it reminds me of like going into a relationship, right? You you want to do, definitely do a lot more listening, at least in my perspective is you want to listen more and identify more and do less talking about yourself. And, you know, there's a, a Q&A process in that. Um, the literal um, uh, question, you know, when you introduce yourself, I think the introduction has to be uh, initially very short and to the point. I don't think you have to go into an elaborate talking eyes and me's. I think what you want to do is concentrate on, hey, you know, I'm not here to do anything other than to assess, like Kurt said, um, introduce yourself in a short a short way and then go from there and then lead it into a broader conversation after you've done your assessment. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I know you got experience in the Marine Corps and also um, working with several leaders in the fire department and emergency services. What's your take? Yeah, and like you were saying earlier, a big key for a good leader right off the bat is listening. My grandma always told me you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should do you <laughs> should good. Do, yeah, you should do twice as much listening as you do talking. So that's uh that's one good thing I think leaders have to do is listen to the men that they're leading and what some of their concerns are, uh, and then uh and then address those concerns. Yeah, that's that's good. That's actually good, real good advice because you know grandmas are always right when they Hell talk yeah. advice because they're old school. You know that's yep. that's really important, especially in this uh, modern millennial world that we live in, where everybody wants to come in and crush it, crush everything. Hashtag, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but nobody wants to be patient and compassionate, and then and actually think through processes. Being self-absorbed, like only thinking about yourself. Obviously, if you're stepping into that team environment, you need to. Uh, not think about just you. Yeah, I think the the actual presence, like I was always taught, or maybe I taught myself in this this sense where you, you don't want to use the word I a lot. Yeah. You don't want to talk. Team. Yeah, you don't want to talk about yourself and you, you don't want to highlight your accomplishments, especially as a leader of a group of individuals um, that are individual thinkers. You want to highlight um, their accomplishments and what they're doing right and give good guidance. I think especially when you set that precedence, which is the, the first thing that people will see, you're starting off on the right foot. Hell yeah. 100%. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Mix that up. <laughs> that was like a remix. Um, yeah. So, you know, what are some, some different things that you could do? I think one thing you could do is you could read about people's experiences. You know, you're hearing from our experiences, um, which is a total of probably, probably about 60 years of crisis response experience and special operations experience, a little bit of forced recon time. And then, <laughs> and then, and then you, could, you could go from there. You could actually um, read books. Like Platoon Leader was one of the, a really good book that I read as a young, impressionable soldier that was about a, a platoon leader in Vietnam from the 173rd. Um, you know, Kurt got that experience from his dad, who was an officer in the 1st Cavalry Division, which is amazing. Um, I had to read about those experiences and you, you get something, you get a takeaway every time you do that. So yeah, definitely, definitely do read. Also, we have upcoming new things that are happening. Hell yeah. So the biggest thing for me and Kurt is, you know, we're getting the F out of Phoenix. Um, <laughs> the only time I want to come back to Phoenix is during the wintertime because this place gets balls hot. Yeah, we like Phoenix. It's just hot. Yeah, we're not a fan of heat because uh, it reminds us of Baghdad. <laughs> and I'm not a fan of Baghdad. We're going to be doing courses in Colorado and beautiful, near beautiful Durango, Colorado. 
which is an epic opportunity for us. Um, I won't go over the over all the courses, but we do have our ops course that we're bringing back, which is which stands for Observe, Prepare, Survive. And I won't turn this podcast into a two hour podcast. So if you want to check it out, you want to learn more about how to manage stress, how to deal with uh, training environments, how to how to implement that into your survival training routine. Uh, definitely check out the ops course on uh, our website at philcraftsurvival.com. Also, me and Kurt have been doing this new thing with a guy named Ryan who owns a media company and he's doing a lot of Taps filming. Taps Media. Taps Media. Ryan's an awesome dude, a good guy who's helping us out and reformatting kind of our brand and, and, disseminate, and the way we disseminate it, right? We want to show you guys the visual commentary or narrative and uh, of our branding and what we do. We don't just want to tell you about it via word, the spoken word. We actually want to show you about it, if that makes sense. Um, so definitely stay tuned to our YouTube channel, the Fieldcraft Survival Channel, and stay tuned for more upcoming highlight reels and also training reels that we're going to do uh, to give you, again, uh, a, a good take on survival and that free content. You just buy a hat and I'll, we'll give you free content. <laughs> So closing out, you know, hey, our social media, as always, on Instagram, Soft Survivor and at Fieldcraft Survival. Also, you can catch Kurt at Kurt underscore Fieldcraft Survival. No, team Kurt underscore Fieldcraft. team Fieldcraft. I We've made done that like account. ten. I know. We've uh, done ten of these. It's so complicated. <laughs> Just we call could it. change it. I could be Soft Survivor too. Kurt <laughs> underscore Dildo. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's, or that. That's catchy. Yeah. Um, and then Kevin's. Which is, it's like Devil Dog Consult, right? Yeah, they wouldn't let me put the I in. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want the past tense of, <laughs> yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, Kevin is going to be on our next episode as well. If you guys haven't heard of Kevin's stuff, uh, Kevin does have a website. Yes, uh, www.devildogconsulting.us. Oh, but you're that guy. Yeah, because <laughs> I like the U.S. Oh, you know, that's what they that's say. Why. It's us, yeah. but it's 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 U.S. Though it's United States. That's a, that's okay. That, that that makes sense. That's patriotic, so it makes sense. Yeah, being um, forced recon. You know, I wanted to be patriotic. <laughs> Touche. You heard it first here on this podcast. Absolutely not. Do not listen to him. <laughs> or, so if you want to if you want to check him out, he does have a bleeder pack that we actually use. We we carry it in all of our kit, and uh, we're going to talk about it next episode because it's something that we believe that everybody should have, especially when looking at natural catastrophes. Any parting words? Appreciate everybody's support. Thanks for listening. Thank you guys for letting me uh, come on and be a guest. It won't happen again. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Uh, Until next time, stay alert. Stay alive. Stay alive.